Amen. You may be seated. So we are back today in a sermon mini-series called Desert Trees. And I want to read just a few verses from Exodus and then one verse from the book of Hebrews. Our next desert dwellers. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. This is, of course, in the context of the Egyptian slavery. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. From Hebrews 11, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is the word of the Lord. Move on us by your spirit, our Father, we pray now as we hear this word in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I think you could say that this sermon series has been about 18 years in the making because when I was still a wee lad in the ministry, as I said last week, I began to have this very strange feeling very early in my pastoral ministry as I was coming to church each week. And I'll tell you what it started to feel like. It started to feel like I was, you know, God's people would gather like you are here today and I was kind of pouring water onto these potted plants who had just spent a week in the desert. And for, you know, the hour of our worship, you ever seen a really dried plant when you water it, it kind of starts to perk up and it kind of starts to wake up and you see some awakeness and alertness and some vibrancy. And I would see that for the hour and then they had to go back to the desert. And by the time these brothers and sisters got to the parking lot, it seemed like that water was already drying up. And I do not mean that they stopped believing God is real. If you had asked any one of these brothers and sisters, do you believe God is real? Yes, we believe God is real. That was not the problem. Beyond the parking lot, the difficult thing was that God was not really relevant. Because real life, quote unquote, took over. And I think the most troubling thing for me was the youth. Because I was called in the, as a, early on as a pastor to minister to youth. And I've always had a real soft spot in my heart for young disciples. And the youth really troubled me because even in worship, I had this feeling I was having, I was barely keeping their attention. Sometimes I get that with you guys, you young ones here. It's like, I can tell you're sitting here and, I, you know, you're, you're, your heads are elsewhere. And once these young people were out the door, and it really became quite acute when they would go off to college and they were beyond the direct influence of home and church, it was just obvious to me God had no relevance to their to their real life. He wasn't relevant to their dating. He wasn't relevant to their, uh, their friendships. He wasn't relevant to their career choices. He just was not relevant, you know, real life. 
And I found myself as a young pastor wanting to understand this desert. Like, what's going on out there? What is it that so effectually dries up the faith and the worship and the zeal and the service of God's people? Now, I thought at the time, being a young, naive post-seminary, and I thought, well, it has to be the fact that our our world is so atheistic. You know, it's got to be direct attacks on the faith. You know, you get into a, like, biology class, and they start banging on your faith with Darwin or something. Godless ideas are sucking the faith out of people. And so I started all this worldview training, you know, giving the right ideas. And it still was not connecting. And I just slowly realized that it was something else. And this is what I finally, after much study and observation, came to see, that at the heart of life in today's world, at the heart of life in today's world, is a conviction This conviction feels true even if you think differently. Many of you are going to not agree with what I'm about to say. You don't think this, but you feel it, and so do I. And here's the conviction that is at the heart of life in the modern world. Real life is finding happiness. That's real life, and only you can decide what makes you happy. We just feel that. Real life, and when you kind of get through, cut through all the BS, real life is finding happiness, and only you can decide what makes you happy. And that's why for the, modern, you know, for the modern person, the idea that something could matter enormously, it might be worthy of your sustained attention and devotion, even though it has nothing to do with your personal happiness, that's just nonsense to us. You, you have one life to find happiness. What matters is what helps with that. Stuff feels real when it's about that. You've got to find happiness. Time's running out. And to be, you know, as I said last week, this does not at all mean you have to be irreligious. You know, we have this idea that mod, the modern world is so irreligious. It's not irreligious. People are extremely religious and spiritual today because we've realized that believing in God can help you find happiness. You know, if it does it for you, if the God thing helps you find happiness, you know, good for you, man. But notice, this is different from, you know, times past. God is relevant because he makes you happy. And it's always important to underscore in the modern world, he's just one of the options because the reality is many, many, many people find happiness without God. Many people solve their problems without God. Many people live meaningful lives, even very moral lives without God. We all see it every day, so you don't need God to find happiness. Although if he does help you find happiness, good for you. And that, brothers and sisters, is why God fades in the parking lot. Because you and I are going to walk out of this building today, and by the time we get to the parking lot, it's going to be at the gut level. I'm not saying what's in your head. At the gut level, we've had our God fix, and now we're busy finding happiness in other ways. If God is not the undisputed water source, if he is not the only water in the desert, if he is not the source of all life and the goal of all life, then really, brothers and sisters, what's the urgency about staying connected to him? or bringing water out to the desert, because people out there need it too. This, I think, is the modern desert. You're all in it, whether you think that way or not. But uh, the point of this series is that this is not the first desert that God's people have lived in by far. I think many of us tend to look at the Bible characters, the Bible saints, and we have this idea that somehow these people, they had it better than we do, because God was always talking to them. And he was always doing all these miraculous things right before their eyes. And so, you know, they just had it easier than we do. And the thing I've noticed as I've read the Bible is that many people in the Bible never heard a single word from God directly. Not one. 
And many of them lived in socio-cultural contexts that had zero props for their faith, nothing to support their faith and walk with God. And lots of other gods, by the way, lots of other deities promising all kinds of blessing. And I've asked myself in this series, like, how did these desert dwellers stay connected to God, rooted to God, and flourish in these deserts? And so we're going to talk about a second one today. Last week was Joseph. This week, Moses' parents, obviously. Now, of all the characters that we're going to look at in this seven-part series, I think this young Levite couple possibly lived in the most brutal situation. I mean, we didn't read chapter one, which we probably should have. This is a description of their day job. The Egyptians are worried because the Israelites are multiplying like crazy, and so they have this idea they need to sort of crush these people and keep them under heel. So we are told the Egyptians set taskmasters, not to be confused with a boss, by the way, taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. So they ruthlessly, you know what ruthlessly means? With no mercy, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, lest you missed it, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It is actually, you know, you think your day job is stressful. Maybe it is. It could be worse. Try imagining you get up every day at whatever, you know, with the dawn or before and you're driven out on the other end of a lash, and this is your day, grinding in the brick kilns, beaten, bloody, watching people you love and care for beaten, bloody. I don't even know if we can imagine, you know, maybe the African-American community in our country, they could speak to this in their history, but it's just hard to imagine the scarcity, the poverty, the powerlessness I hear Americans complain about our regime and how oppressive it is. I mean, there is worse, brothers and sisters. The powerlessness. I mean, you talk about being marginalized and the pain. Like, if you don't do your job, they just beat you bloody. The toil, the burdens, because nobody cares if you drop dead under your burden. We'll just pick up the next slave and keep moving. The intimidation, the fear, the anxiety that we're just daily realities for them. And the thing that we don't maybe see in this text is this has been going on for years. It's not like this was going on, you know, we've got to have a, a rough decade. It's possible this has been going on for centuries. You, maybe you're, you've never known anything else. And now, in the previous chapter, Pharaoh, it's not working. He's not sort of beating these people down. They just keep multiplying. And so he says, well, we're going to start killing their babies. So they decide to kill all the male, male children. There's this paranoid public campaign of infanticide now. That's their world. That's, they were born into this world. They have lived their whole lives in this world. Um, it, what's not so clear in the text here is that these, these are older. This is an older couple. This is not like, you know, 25-year-olds. They're, they're, they're kind of later in life. And this has been their whole life. And I just want to try to get in their heads for a minute because one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to emphasize in this series is that when I talk about the desert, the desert, whether it's our modern desert or that desert in Egypt, the desert is psychological it's not just circumstantial. Like, you think about our modern desert, as I've described it. In fact, God is not absent from the modern world. The reality of our circumstance, our situation, is that, in fact, God is no less real today than he was at the height of Christendom. God is no less relevant today than he has ever been, but he feels 
like he's not relevant. See, there's a psychological thing. Why does God feel absent? Well, I mean, the short answer to that is because other things are so insistently foregrounded in our world today that giving attention to God feels like a distraction from reality. That is a feeling. That's in here. That's not true. Giving attention to God is absolutely not a distraction from reality, but it feels like it because all that stuff is presented as like that's the real stuff. That's what really matters. And at most, God is kind of a way to get what really matters. And so in Egypt, it's psychological, the desert. What felt real in Egypt when you got up every day as a slave, what felt relevant to the life you were about to live for 12 hours, what felt like it was the real thing in daily life was the power of Pharaoh and the power of his gods. How real do you think the God of Abraham felt at 5 a.m. when the call to go out to this brick kilns comes and you're going to spend another day trudging in this clay making bricks for the, the, the mighty store cities of Python and Ramses. Did God feel real? He certainly did not. What felt real was the power of Pharaoh and the power of his gods. And it's interesting to notice Pharaoh understands that and he works that psychological angle very intentionally. He wants these people to forget their history and surrender their future. That's what Pharaoh wants. Forget your story, forget your history, and give up on any idea of a future. Pharaoh wants these people to think like slaves. He wants them to get up every day with this thing, no matter what they might think in their conscious minds. He wants this gut feel in, 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 within them. I own you. I'm writing your story. I own your children. I own your future. You are mine. And he just leans on that with them. He wants to get in their heads. And what's crazy for Moses' parents is there's a lot of peer pressure. Because we don't find out until the end of the book of Joshua that a bunch of the Israelites have caved and they've started worshiping the gods of Egypt. And so sometimes, like us today, God's people need to stir up our faith when it feels, when faith in God feels optional, because there are all these other seemingly viable alternatives to God, and so we have to stir up our faith because it feels like God is just optional. But sometimes, like for these people, we, they had to stir up faith when all the sociocultural power was with those who opposed God. That's a desert. That's a psychological desert. When it's not just that people ignore God and seem to flourish. That's our desert. People just seem to ignore God and flourish. It's hard to keep God in view when that's going on. But for these people, it was more that those who opposed God and opposed his people just clearly had the upper hand. That was their desert. But because the desert is more a matter of the heart and the mind than it is circumstances. I, I just want to underscore that again, brothers and sisters. A situation cannot dry up faith. Are you with me? Does that make sense? A situation cannot dry up your faith. But the feeling in that situation that God is not here or that he's not trustworthy anymore or that he's not really in control or that other things are just so much more important, that feeling, that can dry up your faith. And because that is where the desert really lies, it's in here, the heart and the mind, then that's where you have to begin to deal with the desert. Your situation doesn't need to change. Your heart and mind need to change. And Moses' parents show us kind of two levels of response. And the first I'd like to point out, the first level of response on their part to this horrific situation is memory. 
memory. I'm getting that from that little phrase in Hebrews, they saw that the child was beautiful. And you're going to be like, what? Follow me here. These, this young Levite couple, they, in these horrible circumstances, they refuse to forget their history and their identity. They just refuse to forget their story and who they are. Now, I've got to tell you, this is some rugged remembering. <laughs> you think it's hard to remember God? Do you realize that these, this, this, this couple, this Levite couple, literally all they have is some passed down oral stories about their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've got some ancestors. They've been telling these stories about their ancestors for like hundreds of years, and they, they know that God made some promises in those stories. That is literally the only prop for their faith is the memory of those stories that they retell again and again. These people have no priest. They have no prophet. They have no scriptures. They have no Sabbath. They have no temple. They have no feast calendar. They have no sacrifice. They got, they, they got nothing. They have one single thing, just retelling these old stories again and again and again. You remember Father Jacob, or Father, you know, Jacob going to the Paddan Aram? You remember Father Abraham going to Egypt? And yet, through memory and retelling these stories, they retain their identity and a sense of solidarity with one another in this desert. We are Levites. We are one of the tribes of Israel, Father Israel, who wrestled with God and wrestled with men and prevailed. That's who we are. And that memory enables actually stunning alertness. They keep telling those stories, and because they know those stories and they remember those stories, they have unbelievable alertness to where they are in the story And because they know where they are in the story, they know what to expect and what to look for in their particular time because they know from those stories that God in Genesis 15 told Father Abram something interesting. He told Father Abram that his seed would be afflicted in a land not their own for guess how long? 400 years. They remember that from the story. And Father Joseph prophesied that you're going to leave this place, take my bones with you, and go when you go back to Canaan. They remember that from the story. And now this couple is looking around some centuries into this miserable experience, and they, because they remember, because they're exercising their memory, they see the indicators for those who have eyes to see that God is doing something. The first thing that they see is in chapter 1, we are told that despite every effort of this oppressive regime, Now, where have you heard this language before? Israel, we are told, is irrepressibly being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land. Now, what does that make you think of? That, my friends, is straight-up creation language. That is a new humanity being formed by God, just like he made human beings at the very beginning in Eden to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's suddenly happening in Egypt. These oppressed people are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land, and there's like this weird sense of, is God creating something here? And then they have this baby, and this is wild. They see, now I want you to ask you where you've heard this before. They make a baby, and they see that this baby is, and the Hebrew word is tov. The baby is good. And where have we heard that before? That the Lord God makes something, and he sees it's good. 
This is creation language. I don't know what it was about baby Moses. I don't know, maybe he had a crazy birthmark or something. Something about this little one, because they know where they are in the story and they're paying attention, something about this baby's appearance, they know immediately, oh my, God is about to work. And this little one is going to be the one he uses. God, in the darkness and emptiness of slavery, is going to speak life through this little one, and he's going to break the power of our bondage. He has sent us a savior. We've been waiting for someone to crush the serpent here in Egypt, and somehow they recognize, oh my, this is this, this, this baby. They're able to read the times and recognize the signs of deliverance because of memory. And to be clear, brothers and sisters, lest we romanticize this, they're able to recognize the signs of a deliverance that is still 80 years away. 80 years away. But this is the power of memory. The hearts of believers are living temples, we are told, where we carry, no matter what our situation might be, we carry in our hearts God's presence and his purposes through our memory. Regardless of our context, do you realize that your heart, in your heart, you're never a slave? In your heart, you're never ruined? In your heart, you're never an orphan? In your heart, you're never forsaken? In your heart, you always walk by faith because there is no regime, there is no circumstance, there is no misery in your life that can take away from you that thing that God has given you in his heart, which in your heart, which is that he is with you and you are a part of his story and nobody can take that away from you. They can't take that away from you by no matter what, they could put you in a black hole in the ground for the rest of your life. Your heart is a living temple of God. And you carry that with you no matter what the circumstances are. It is unbreakable. That's the life of God's people. That's memory. We are the Lord's no matter what they do to our bodies. No regime can touch or control that. How does that kind of memory work today, I wonder? Well, you know, I might be a little bit out on a limb here, but I'm going to say this. One way to try to blank the memory of God's people, to try to like blank out their memory and just make them docile before sociocultural powers, one way to do that is with a lash. You beat them enough, you might make them docile. They might make them forget who they are. There's another way to do it, and I'm not really being facetious when I say that. You could, on the other hand... Just give every one of them a handheld internet connection. And for every bloody hour of their lives, saturate them in data without wisdom, stimuli without virtue, options without values, happenings without history. Connectivity without common life. And then, take it a step further, and now you've got them. Convince them somehow that they're navigating all of this guided solely by personal choice is the very definition of human freedom. Now you've got them. And they will docilely sit there and suck down everything you feed to them. Won't ever question it because this is freedom. In our desert today, the reason why we so often, and I watch you guys, I watch my own heart. I, please, I'm not making this up. The reason why we very often do not remember really in any vital way whose we are 
what history we are a part of, what kingdom we are a part of. Beloved, can we just get real for a second? Sometimes we don't even care whose we are, what story or kingdom we're a part of. Why? Because, as Mark Sayers puts it so brilliantly, he says, because there is now no place to stand apart from the world. It used to be you could just step away from the world. Now it's just there's no way to stand, nowhere to stand away from the world. And so I want to tell, talk to you fathers and just say to you, beloved fathers, I love you guys so much. You have no idea how I pray for you. I, fathers, wield the tools of memory in our time. Wield the tools of memory in this generation of God's people in this desert. What do I mean? You, you remember Deuteronomy 6? These things about God, write them on your doorpost, write them on the lintel of your, of your house. Be talking about this stuff. Stir up the tools of memory. Here are some examples. Fathers insist on worship. Just insist on worship. You know the crazy thing about North American Christians? We're free to worship so we don't. It's just shocking. Do you know how the persecuted church, how religiously they'd be in worship on Sunday? How religiously they'd read the scriptures they do not possess. We're free, and we don't even use our freedom. Can I just say to you fathers, just, I don't care if your kids like you, be uncompromisingly committed to Lord's Day worship. Just uncompromisingly committed. We are with God's people worshiping and fellowshipping on the Lord's Day. Just be religious about it. Insist on it. And in your personal lives too, like insist on worship. Find a way to pray. You know, prayer's hard in the modern world. I sit down, I've said it before, I, I can't even like pray because my mind is so full of stuff, but find a way. We, help e- we can help each other. Find a way to pray on your own at the family altar. Pray with your family. Pray with friends. Pray over the word. Sometimes pray in song, but insist on worship. Man, there's nothing more important that we do to keep the memory of God's people alive. Here's another thing. In our particular desert in 2023, relearn where we are in the story. Relearn where we are in the story. Because unfortunately, I've got to preach to you guys in a Christian evangelical culture today that is so full of end times stupidity, it drives me nuts. This end times madness you hear all the time has corrupted our reading of the Bible story. Just two things you need to make sure you don't suck that story down anymore. Number one, Jesus is Lord. He's not going to be Lord after his second coming. He is Lord now, okay? That's number one. And the second thing is that most of the end times weirdness we hear is actually talking about stuff that Jesus did in the early church. He conquered the beasts in his time, in the time of the early church, and if he conquered those first century beasts, he will continue to conquer beasts throughout history as his people patiently wait and pray and do good works in his name. Relearn where we are in the Bible story, please. And the third thing, stirring up the tools of memory. Ground yourself, fathers, and your family. Ground yourself in a historically rooted school of disciples. A historically rooted school of disciples. Not something that got started last week. And, and beloved, we got to realize in our time, it is a constant temptation for us to Google our discipleship. You know what it means to Google discipleship? It means you're looking, you know, you're browsing for something that is custom made to your felt wants and your felt needs, and you're just like a consumer, Googling your discipleship. That is not the biblical model. God ordained, fine, you can use Google, I'm not telling you you can't, but God ordained the mess of the local church where we are actually submitted to and we are growing with a people over generations who know their history. Be a part of that. Now that brings us to the second thing, and I'll be much briefer here. Don't get worried. Memory. 
But that brings us to a second level with Moses' parents, much more quickly. But notice, memory produces, memory in the desert produces morals in the desert. Because they have this memory of who they are, they are, the second thing Hebrews says, not afraid of the king's edict. Can I just say to you guys quickly, your past gives shape to your future. Knowing your identity, we are God's people, and you know that whole story of how we got here. That identity demands integrity. I know how to walk into the future because I know where we've been. I know how to shape my life walking forward because I know where we have been. These people, slaves that they are, they do not live as if they belong to Pharaoh because they don't. Do you follow? It's the memory that produces the morals. It's the past that shapes their future. They, they act like Levites. They obey God with respect to their child, fearless of the king's edict. And to be clear, you know how a slave dies if the king finds out you broke his, his decree? They serve Pharaoh in the brick kilns, but they do not belong to Pharaoh, and their children do not belong to Pharaoh. That's why the midwives just decide they're not killing these babies. We're just not doing it, O king. Do your worst. These these parents will not give their child to the Nile god to devour because this child belongs to the possessor of heaven and earth. So it's just not a conversation. And what's interesting is this is not just preservation. I mean, you could say this is just straight, straight up sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. It's not just preservation. There is such a crazy little note here of preparation. Preparation for the future because they know their history. These two parents are going to die as slaves. But you know what they know? Our children are destined to live as free people because God promised it. And that's why when they are no longer able to hide this child, maybe he was a noisy little guy, they put him in an ark. The only two places this Hebrew word is used in the entire Hebrew Bible are in the flood story in Genesis and here. And they build an ark, and they put this little guy in the ark, and they set him to sail above the watery flood of the Nile God. And they know that like Noah and his family, this little guy is sailing into a new creation that God has in store for his people. This little boat story is his parents saying by faith, God will bring us through the flood of the Nile God and bring us out of here. Dare I say they baptized this little baby into God's purposes that will carry him and all Israel with him all the way to the promised land, promised to Father Abraham. Wow! And what's interesting in this story, and I am almost done, is that these godless powers, godless powers, they don't understand. when When godless powers try to own God's people, they forget something. They forget that God's people are a blessing among the nations. They are a blessing among a people because they are His people. Because they do not belong to the empire. They do not belong to the regime. You know why Joseph was a blessing in Egypt? He was a blessing because he would not conform to 
Egyptian idolatry and immorality. He just would not do it. He was God's man. That's why he could bless the empire. And it's crazy. Like, Pharaoh's insane. His attempt here to own these slaves, I'll write your story, I will own you, I will kill your kids if I want, this isn't just stupid. I mean, how much sense does it make if you depend on a slave force to kill your workforce? I mean, it must be he rescinded the decree thinking I'd lost my mind because it, Moses has a bunch of contemporaries who grew up, you know, with him. So apparently Pharaoh finally figures out this is one of the dumbest decrees in, on record. But it isn't just, it isn't just stupid. It's, it's suicidal because you want to stand up against this people and their God. Guess what? You're going to meet their God someday. In 80 years, you're going to lose your firstborn. He's not, you know, you, you want to talk about who owns whose kids? But beloved, we forget. This is my point about the morals. We forget this too. We forget we will be blessed and we will be a blessing in whatever people we find ourselves because we serve God alone. Because we will not bow to the idols of Egypt. We will not live by the immorality of Egypt. Be not conformed to this world if you would do any good in the world. Amen? Be God's people. Follow his law. Follow his wisdom. Be all his because you are. And that is what God is calling us to do in our desert today, to reshape our daily lives, our daily lives, beloved. You know, you can sit here and look fine. Me too. To shape our daily lives around the fact, the fact that we are not our own. We are bought, we are freed with a price, and that price is what? The blood of Jesus who is now Lord. Body and soul. Time and possessions energies and opportunities we are his that my dear friends is the root of christian bioethics so help me if i hear one more christian young person say these godless antichrist words my body my choice no not my own this is the root of christian bioethics you're not your own the root of christian sexual ethics we are not our own it is the root of our economics of time our economics of attention our economics of technology our economics of money it is the root of our relational priorities we are not our own and are we reshape our lives around that reality my friend jake wrote that wrote this recently and i'll close with this and he says it so well the morals that flow from the memory He says, the most important, the most true, the most essential thing in all of human existence is this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead so we could be reconciled to God and one another. And he now calls us to live lives of reconciliation, aiding us through the sending of the Holy Spirit and from his place at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. Amen? That's the most important, most essential, most true thing because this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. Everything else about our lives is negotiable according to whether or not it aids us in being reconciled to God and to one another. Work lives are negotiable. How we use our money is negotiable. How we organize our communities and how we relate to our neighbors is all negotiable, providing that negotiating happens beneath the recognition of Christ's lordship and his authoritative call on our lives. With that base... We're equipped to think creatively and faithfully about how to build Christendom anew in our own local communities and neighborhoods, hoping always for God to pour out his blessings on us so we can bless our neighbors and call them to the same life of joyful service and conviviality that we seek to live. That is water in the desert. More next week.
Father, bless these things to our hearts and give us this kind of courageous faith. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.